0: So we're at Pentecost, and this is the triple crown of the Christian calendar. Uh, You know, there's Christmas, and then there's Easter, and then there's Pentecost. And Pentecost is a day all about the Holy Spirit, about God's very personal and powerful intersection with the human race, and in particular with the church. And you may also know that the ancient Celtic Christians used a very unusual symbol for the Holy Spirit when they talked about the Holy Spirit and when they iconized the Holy Spirit, they displayed the Holy Spirit as a wild goose. A wild goose, not a dove, but a wild goose. Why? Because for them, a wild goose was a symbol for something that is untamed and undomesticated uh, by people. And the, the Holy Spirit for them represented a sacred kind of chaos that would invade the world in order to upset the very entrenched, sinful, dark, dismal systems that we have put into place, that he would create a holy disturbance in order to set the world right. And that is what Acts chapter 2 is all about, the sacred chaos of the Holy Spirit, the wild goose set free. Within the inner city. And when the Holy Spirit labors, we can know, uh, we can be sure that things will become a little unpredictable, uh, but also very, very good. And I want to speak today about three effects from uh, three effects of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that affected the disciples that also will have reverberations in our own lives. So I'm praying today for you and for myself to have some Pentecostal reverberations. A visitation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so let me talk about those three effects. But before I get there, just a very brief word of context. So Acts chapter 2 uh, happens unsurprisingly after Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is bodily usurped into the heavens. And so he is physically no longer with us, but he promised his disciples that he would remain with them in some way. And they were to go into Jerusalem, which was, by the way, a very dangerous place for them at the time, to hide away in an attic in the inner city and to pray in the inner city until they were visited and and clothed with power from on high. That's the language. And so that's where they are. They're in an attic and they're praying. Uh, that, that they would be the recipients of a grand visitation that the world had previously not experienced. And so they're praying that this spirit of Jesus, this hovering presence, this potency would visit them in their great need as they hide away in the inner city. And this is what they experienced, three effects of the Holy Spirit. The first effect is what we could call resurgence, Resurgence, and that simply means recovery, a revival of spirit, power, power that comes close. And this scene is rife with power. There's external power and there's internal power, and they're both present on the day of Pentecost. The external power is very obvious. I encourage you to read along with me. This is verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So let's talk about the external part first, the external power. This is a theophany. Theophanies are very rare in scripture, even rarer in regular life. But a theophany means a visible display, not a hunch, not a a psychological breakthrough, but a visible display of eternal Heavenly, sublime power in the present, of God's nearness. And very often, when this happens in the Old Testament as well as the New, there are signs that accompany it, like wind and fire, and both are present here. Now, why fire? Well, fire is a biblical sign of illumination, right? We see because of fire, especially in the dark, and illumination and incineration, it, it burns up impurities. That's very often what fire symbolizes in the Bible, and there's a grand history in sacred scripture of celestial fire, the visitation of celestial fire as representing God's immediacy, God's presence. It happens, of course, with Moses and the burning bush that he sees. It happens as Israel uh, traverses through the wilderness and sees a pillar of fire. It happens uh, at Mount Sinai, when the top of the mountain is scorched with fire, it happens with Elijah as he calls down fire from heaven and it consumes the, the sacrifice. It happens with Isaiah as a burning coal is placed on his tongue. Uh, it happens with John the Baptist when he prophesies about a time when somebody will come to baptize you not with water, but with fire. And then it happens in Jesus's ministry when he says, I have come to set fire to the world. And now that fiery moment has finally arrived and the world starts to light up with a new sacred fire. And so Pentecost begins not with a feeling or a hunch, but with something quite visible, actually, Uh, something historical, a display, a grand display of power to definitively mark the occasion of God's visitation. This isn't just something in people's heads. This is something that people experience, see, and uh, know. But there's also some internal power from the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not just about things that look like flames above people's heads. There's something about that fire and that experience that begins to concretize within the center of people's being. They start to change because of what they experience on the day of Pentecost, And this makes sense if you understand who the Holy Spirit is in Scripture. The Holy Spirit always decides to take up residence in people's core in their hearts and to give them, to birth within them, a source of energy. Uh, The Holy Spirit is like the, the womb or the furnace of creation. He's the place where life happens, where life starts. He's the source of energy, of potency, of power, and of life. Jesus talks about the Spirit in that way as the the source of life and potency and power. You may remember the story when Nicodemus, this very um, well-educated PhD, visits Jesus in the middle of the night because he's afraid of what people will think. And he has a very burdened mind. And he has a lot of questions. And he wants to know about eternal life. And he wants to know how life can be altered and fixed in a permanent way. And so he talks to Jesus about his questions. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, it's not enough to think like a person. And it's not enough to just have like a mother and to enter the world in a normal way uh, with all of the, the regular and typical assets of a human being. You need an additional asset. You need, in fact, a new renaissance or a new birth. You need to be born from above or to quote Jesus directly, born of the Spirit. You need to have the potency and power of God as the secret ingredient in your life. And then you'll really be able to see and enter the kingdom of God. But you can't see and enter it without the secret ingredient, without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to birth within you a powerful regeneration. You can become a new person and you need the Holy Spirit in order to do that. That he is the supernatural ingredient uh, that changes the disciples forever. Doesn't fix everything that's wrong with them, by the way, but does give them a profound and lasting revival Uh, So let me speak to you about this secret ingredient by relating it, of course, to my experience in marrying into an Italian family. So I've learned this about Italians. They're extremely sneaky when it comes to cuisine. So if you ask for a recipe from an Italian family, they'll give you 95% of it. But they will always, always, and yes, I'm naming you, always leave out a secret ingredient so that you'll never be able to copy the recipe perfectly. And now that I'm in the loop, I know some of the secret ingredients, but not all. But the secret ingredient makes all the difference in the world in these recipes. Well, the same thing can be said only in a much more sublime way for the Holy Spirit. You can be a really nice person. You can read all the the books from Tony Robbins about self-improvement. You can go to the right classes. You can get the right shrink. You can take the right meds. I recommend all those things, by the way, they're terrific. But if you don't have the secret ingredient, Which has to do with a new birth, something on the inside, where God begins to intersect with you personally. You won't have enough resources. But what God wants to do with you is to move in, to get closer to your territory, so that you can have a life that is deeply formed and shaped and freed up for the purposes of heaven that's the secret ingredient. And notice what happens to the disciples when that secret spirit ingredient is added. He takes these defeated, bewildered, confused, despondent abdicators and turns them into the champions of creation, turns them into fighters in the truest sense of the word, turns them into heroes. He births heroism into the human heart and takes these people who were terrified, even after Jesus's resurrection, they weren't sturdy. They weren't solid, but makes them into people who shook the foundations of the world and made politicians tremble. Men who marched to their deaths with smiles on their faces, knowing that they had served their king and they were ready to see him again. He made them into heroes that's the internal change that the Holy Spirit affected. So, the first effect of the Holy Spirit is a resurgence through this display of external and internal power. The second effect of the Holy Spirit is reunion. And this is verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You may know that Pentecost, was originally a Jewish feast before it was a Christian feast, and it was an especially ethnically oriented feast. It celebrated two things within Judaism. One was the the harvests that God provided for the nation of Israel, and also the giving of the law, the Torah, which defined Israel as over and against other nations, at least as recipients of a sacred revelation. And this highlights my point that first century Judaism was a religion of fences or iron curtains, if you will. Israel was meant to be a peculiar people, a distinctive people, uh, different from uh, their neighbors. And their differentiations were, uh, were throughout their uh, religious experience, and even their physical presence. You may know that their bodies were marked as peculiar because of the rite of circumcision. Their diet was peculiar because they could only eat certain things and had to avoid other things. Their clothing was marked as peculiar because They had to use certain materials and not others. And they had to, they decorated themselves, their heads and their wrists with leather boxes that had little Bible verses in them to distinguish themselves for the rest of the world. And their religious structures and even their reason for sacrificing was different from the other nations. They had a temple in which sacrifices were offered for sins, not to keep demons away, not for superstition, but to deal with their own personal crimes against heaven. And so they were a people that were, that were to be unique, to avoid the practices, the gods, the clothing, the food, the body markings of other countries and embrace, uh, embrace their own revelation. They were distinctive. And so you have this fascinating crowd gathering for the Feast of Pentecost, a crowd that is both unified and yet divided. They're unified in religious belief and devotion. They all made a pilgrimage to the city for Pentecost. It wasn't required that they did that. So these were devout men, says the text, devout men. But they were also divided, divided by language and nationality. The scripture mentions in these verses 16 different groups, 16 different groups, most of them with different languages. Uh, And they represent thousands of miles of travel and uh, and many nations. In fact, the text is emphatically and hyperbolically making the point, saying they were from every nation under heaven. And what do they experience on that day of Pentecost? Not just thanking God for wheat and gourds, and not just thanking God for the law, those things which separated and distinguished Israel from other nations. No, what they experienced is a miracle of reunion. Reunion because they begin to hear their own languages from places hundreds, thousands of miles away. They hear their own languages. And they realize, they begin to realize that the Holy Spirit is being poured out not just on an emperor or a monarch or a sacred person or a special person, but upon all these men and women. Now, that was prophesied in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Joel who said there would come a day in which the Spirit would be liberally given to all sorts of people. And that day had finally arrived in which the Holy Spirit begins to incinerate the iron curtains of linguistic and racial uh, division. And Jesus prophesied this in the beginning of Acts. In Acts 1, he said, look, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want everything. I don't just want this city. I don't want the suburbs only. I want the whole world to know. And so we see the beginning of that—the uh, beginning of that expansion—right now. So the Holy Spirit, in, at the Pentecostal feast, creates a supernatural family reunion, connecting various races and languages to a common Messiah. And I think this reunion, this Pentecostal reunion, is a very timely word for us. It's a word that we desperately need to hear in this moment. This Pentecostal moment, in fact, deeply inspired uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his nonviolent vision for racial reconciliation. Uh, I was doing some research yesterday about his movement, and I uh, found out that his movement had six principles, and you needed to Align yourself with these six principles in order to join his cause. And I'll read them to you, and you will hear the accents of Acts 2 within these principles. The first, King said, we need to resist evil without resorting to violence. Second, we need to, be, we need to seek to be friends with an opponent rather than humiliating him. Third, Evil itself, not people committing evil acts, should be opposed. Fourth, suffering without retaliation can be used by God for a redemptive end. Fifth, nonviolence also means nonviolence of spirit. In other words, we refuse to hate our opponents, but instead show them, to quote King, the agape love of God. And sixth, we must have a deep faith in God's future, that God's story is on the side of justice even if we never get to see it. When he was working for racial reconciliation, Martin Luther King knew something very important. He knew that the Holy Spirit does not exist to solidify our status quo. Instead, the Holy Spirit exists to burn down and incinerate our iron curtains, especially iron curtains that we set up based on melanin levels and accents to destroy our tribalism and to show that the things that unite us uh, are so profound and so deep that they transcend all of those other differentiations that we cling to, that we are people, all of us, every one of us, of great internal beauty and devastation, and that Christ came for all of us equally. And we see a glimpse of that in this family reunion. So we have resurgence, reunion, and a third effect of the Holy Spirit, revelation, revelation. Some of you are fans of the musical Hamilton, I'm trying to be, but there is a great line in it uh, where one of the characters asks in song, you want a revolution, I want a revelation. I love that. I want a revelation. I need a word. I need a word from God. A revelation, that's what it means. It means that you have a a direct insight from God, an unobscured insight from God, something that you can hold on to, something that isn't going to change, something that is like granite underneath your legs and your feet that's going to maintain you, uh, whatever the context and whatever things change around you, that you'll be all right because you've heard something from heaven, and this is what they hear in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, the mighty works of God is an Old Testament phrase uh, very frequently used in the Old Testament to refer to historic miracles, not to internal hunches, not to psychological breakthroughs again, but to historical miracles that were attested to by witnesses. And then Acts chapter two, particularly in Peter's sermon, goes on to describe what those mighty works of God are. And those mighty works of God are found in a singular individual, in Jesus, and in what Jesus did. In Jesus, Peter will assert, theology became history, speculation became revelation. Particularly in Jesus's grisly death, Heaven, it is preached, inflicted itself with the torments of the world, with your inner agony and inner, my inner agony, with your inner betrayal and my inner betrayal, took it upon himself and perished. And then three days later, that same sin, darkness, hell, and uh, annihilation was itself annihilated. Sin was overcome in the resurrection of Jesus And notice what the Holy Spirit is doing in this scene. The Holy Spirit is alerting the whole world to these mighty works. The Holy Spirit says, pay attention to this man and to what this man has done. The Holy Spirit, in other words, becomes the strongest ally of one message about one man and spreads it that day to 16 nations. Uh, To quote John Stott, the Holy Spirit is the Father's spotlight on the Son. The Holy Spirit that day spoke about the Son through the apostles, and later the Holy Spirit, through those same talented men, would write about the Son of God. The Holy Spirit has an obsession, and the obsession is promoting the cause of Jesus Christ. And you may know the name Diogenes. He was a very wild, somewhat unstable Greek philosopher who once said this, the real question of life is how much truth does a man got does a man have how much truth does a man have that's the secret of life how much truth do you have and what the holy spirit or the spirit of truth seeks to do is to give you something that is unchanging and undimming something uh, in which um, you'll never uh, experience a loss with you know The something that you can cling to whenever everything else is going away and fading from your life. Uh, That's the real question of life. How much truth do you have? And in Jesus Christ, we see the fullest truth of God that we can comprehend right now. And so the Holy Spirit is existing and present and powerful to promote this revelation that Jesus Christ is the locus of God on earth. Uh, And so that is a wild insight. It's a wild insight, especially considering the crowd, because the crowd is gathering that day to celebrate the law of Moses. And instead, Pentecost changes the dynamic and says, no, 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 Pentecost is really about the power and presence of God in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is now gathering you to focus not on Torah, as wise as it is, but on the man who was the only man to obey it, the only man who could really become for us uh, the, the full truth of God. Uh, and so uh, there's something about revelation, the mighty works of God that are displayed in this Pentecostal moment. And that's, that's chaos, friends. It's chaos within the first century. It's chaos within the streets of the inner city. It's something that's unusual, that causes people all over the world right now, even right now, to experience the Spirit and to have new life because of the Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes and takes our lives that we, you know, when we have a lot of plans, a lot of plans, and he upsets our plans, and he upsets our ideas, and he changes our affections, and he involves himself. He gets so close that he involves himself directly in our lives and how we feel and how we act. And so whenever we invite the Holy Spirit in, whenever we yield to the Holy Spirit, we are yielding to the wild goose of heaven because the Holy Spirit is here to upset the patterns of our dark world and to bring God's holy chaos in order to bring restoration. So let me speak an applicable word about each category and then I'm done. Let me apply these effects to us. Resurgence. As you know, we are extremely fragile, and as fragile people, who have the world around us so frequently allied against us and our well-being. We need vitality. We need re- renewal. I need a miracle every day. You know, I need God to be close to me. I need heaven to care about me. And I need power if I'm to be the kind of man, the kind of person that God wants me to be in the present moment. I actually don't have all the resources because my will is weak and my emotions are fickle and I need a steel spine sometimes, and I need a caring heart. And the only way to have those things when I really need them is to lean into the power of heaven and the power of the Holy Spirit in the present moment. And that's why I need to tell you, and I know you know this, but it's important to hear it again. Christianity is more than information. It's more than going to a class about Christianity. It's more than just like filling in like a sermon outline and knowing more sacred trivia or a theology that you could argue about. It's not, I just need a lot more than that. I need to quote Luther theology to be breath and life. I need the spirit to to get me through. I need the spirit to help me make it over. I need to face certain things in my life and I can't do that without the spirit. And so what the spirit does is he starts to, to unburden us from some of this fallen condition And we need that power. And because some of you today are deeply jaded. And that jadedness is really hurting you. That's bitterness and cynicism and jaded quality is bringing people down around you. Or maybe you really do drink too much right now. It's just too much, and you know it's out of control, and you need to tell somebody that you're terrified of being shamed. But you need strength to tell somebody. Or maybe you have a romantic obsession. And it's really bad for you, actually. But you can't stop thinking about this person, even though uh, a connection with them would really bring you down. Or maybe uh, you have to stay in a difficult marriage right now for a holy reason. Well, let me tell you, you're a fragile person, and you actually don't have within you all the strength you need. You can get through a few hours, maybe. But when when push comes to shove... When you really need the power, there is a source there for you. And Jesus tells us that when you ask for the Holy Spirit, the Father will not give you something else, and he won't hurt you. He will give you what you need. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit for resurgence within. But also reunion. It's important for us to remember there is neither racial nor national exceptionalism in the kingdom of God. In fact, the the scene from Revelation is that the incandescent throne draws all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's the vision of heaven. No one ahead, no one behind, all together intermingling together. And so when we pray the Lord's prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for the scene before the incandescent throne to be true for us right here and now, that what heaven is at the present time will also be true of our experience, that we are praying for a revolt against the status quo. And so I encourage you as you pray the Lord's prayer today to remember, to remember Acts 2, to remember Revelation 7 and to pray into being a scene in which we see each other as the image of God. And we are not defacing that image, decrying it, or inside of ourselves hating it because somebody looks different than we do or speaks differently than we do. And to check ourselves for those prejudices. That's reunion. And something about Revelation. The Holy Spirit does many things in the Bible. Lots of manifestations of the Holy Spirit. You know, some people, um, some people have expectations of the Spirit that when the Spirit lands, sometimes people will fall down. You know, you've seen that. Maybe you've experienced it. Or people will pray in tongues, or maybe the Holy Spirit exists to cure my eczema, or the Holy Spirit exists to give me money. You know, if I really believe in the Spirit, I'll get money. Lots of manifestations people believe in out there. Uh, some of them are probably wonderful. Some of them might be questionable. I've tried the money thing. No, I'm kidding. I haven't tried it, but maybe it would help me. I don't know. Um, but I know what the I know one thing that the Holy Spirit is sure to do every time. He is sure to uplift and exalt Christ, because the Holy Spirit is wild, but he's principally wild about Jesus, and his chiefest manifestation is creating in us a new attachment to the sinner-loving Christ and God's Word about that sinner loving Christ. And so if you want to know if the Spirit's operative in your life, ask yourself, are you being magnetized to Jesus in some way? Even if you're fighting it, You know, but you're being drawn, magnetized to the Son of God. And if that's happening, even to some degree, you know that the Spirit is laboring within you because you wouldn't be magnetized to Jesus unless that were the, the case. So my closing wrap-up word When we ask for the Holy Spirit, friends, we are asking for danger. You need to know that. Christianity isn't some, you know, uh, safe, uh, you know, drug that you take, a little blue pill that you take that makes you go to sleep. That would be nice sometimes. But but instead, we're asking for danger. And remember, remember that danger is connotated in the, the, the Spirit's first name, the Spirit's first name being Holy Holiness means alignment with God, and holiness in an unholy world is revolutionary, but it's the only way that we can be made well. So today, pray for resurgence, a holy resurgence. Pray for a reunion, a holy reunion, and pray for a revelation, a holy revelation, because I think, and maybe you'll agree, that we need the chaos of the Holy Spirit now more than ever. Amen. They took your life They could not take your